Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. Blaxploitation movies were revolutionary in their time, but they could also get, let's just say, a little rote. You don't have to tell that to Michael Jai White and Carl Jones. They watched about a bajillion exploitation movies before they made their new show, Black Dynamite. And let's just say there were some recurring themes. If you look at 95% of those movies, they all had their pimp quotient. They had their um, uh, white man paranoia thing about, you know, about they going to get you, that, that type of thing. <laughs> you had to have your chase scene. You had to have your top shot. <laughs> You had to have some kind of maniacal plot against a black man. You had to have your your dead whitey count. You know, <laughs> at least 20 dead whitey. Um, no cops a- anywhere right, around, right. you know. Uh, so, and everybody knows karate. Right. Everybody knows kung fu. Kung fu. Kung yeah, fu. yeah, it's kung fu. It's bullseye. This week, we talk about some of Michael Jai White and Carl Jones' favorite exploitation movies of the 1970s. An actress, Rachel Dratch, walks into a bar, and six months later, she's pregnant. We'll talk to her about what it's like to unexpectedly become a mother. Plus, Jason Brewer, guitar player for the Explorers Club, on the song that changed his life. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff that is worth your time. This week, we're joined by our friend Mark Frauenfelder from BoingBoing.net, who's got a couple of geeky recommendations for us. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jesse. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very happy to be speaking with you, as per always. Um, Let's start with this video game that I was compulsively playing literally up until the second that we started recording called... Kingdom Rush. Um, this thing, this is one of these tower defense games. Yeah, that's right. And um, basically, a tower defense game is that you have to set up these little uh, weapons stations to prevent a, a horde of invaders from making it from one end of the, of the screen to the other. And you set these little guys on the, the screen where you think uh, in strategic spots. And then when the people come running across the field, your defenses shoot them and you have to make sure that a certain number doesn't make it to the other side if they do you lose the game and you have to start that level over um kingdom rush is my favorite uh, tower defense game that i've played and i've played a lot of them um it's really beautifully done it's it's uh has hand painted graphics that are really nice looking. It's kind of a, a medieval theme. It starts off pretty easy, and it just gets hairier and hairier as you go on. Did you really spend an entire cross-country flight playing this game, Mark? I did, and it's, it's <laughs> a, a round-trip cross-country flight just to finish it. I mean, it was like to get the last two or three levels, I spent 12 hours on a plane playing this game on my iPad. It was insane. But I just had to do it. I didn't even realize I was in the plane while I was playing it. So that was a good good point about it. The bad point was that I didn't read one page of the book I had brought along with me. <laughs> Speaking of books, let's talk about How to Build an Android, Robotic Resurrection, a book by David Dufty. This is about uh, this roboticist named David Hansen and a very distinctive quest that he's been on, one that you guys have been following on Boing Boing for many years. Yeah, this is a a really interesting and fun story. Um, Most people who have heard of this Philip K. Dick android head know about it because there was a a news report uh, about, I think, five years ago or so about this roboticist who had left the android head in the overhead luggage compartment of an airplane when he was on his way to Google to show it uh, as a, at a demonstration. And he fell asleep on the plane. He got up and walked off the plane. And I think he was like in his rental car or the shuttle bus by the time he realized that the head had been 
left on the airplane. So he rushed back and it was gone and they never found the head again. No one can locate it. And so this is the story of the creation of the head. And it's a, it's a really great story. It, it's basically about two people, a, a sculptor slash animatronic artist who's really good at making lifelike rubber heads. So they teamed him up with the, the guy who does all the software for this natural language stuff. And so they built this head. It's, they started out by making like a plastic skull on a 3D printer, and then they stuffed it with motors and pulleys and wires. What they did was they, they uploaded like this massive database of Philip K. Dick's novels and, and all of his interviews. He, he did tons of interviews, and they put these all into a database and then indexed the content so that when you spoke to the Philip K. Dick Android head, one of its computers would translate the speech into text, another computer would query the database and then synthesize something for the Philip K. Dick Android to say in in response to whatever you you said to it, and um, did a lot of surprising things. It gave answers that shocked people. Uh, uh, When the university president interviewed the robot, the robot was like really rude to her. Um, <laughs> so I, I highly recommend it just as, as a kind of a, a great story in uh, uh, engineering uh, a feat of uh, robotics. Well, I, I would love to keep talking, Mark, but uh, I have a kingdom to defend. So I hope you won't mind if I excuse myself. Thanks for joining us on Bullseye as always. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jesse. And and make sure you click on the Snow Yeti trapped in the block of ice. Noted. Mark Frauenfelder recommends the game Kingdom Rush, which you can play as a Flash game online, or you can buy from iTunes for your iPad or uh, iPhone. And the book How to Build an Android, Robotic Resurrection, by David Dufty, which you can find in bookstores. You can find Mark online at boingboing.net, and you can check out his podcast, Gweek, in iTunes. There's something special about the black exploitation film. More than 40 years since Sweet Sweetback's badass song first hit theaters, characters like Shaft and the Mac are still cultural touchstones. There's something about the hero cleaning up the ghetto, saving the community center, and sticking it to the man that shines through, even when the pace is a little slow, the production might be a little amateurish, and the actors are, well, mostly models and football players. My guest, Michael Jai White, was a kid during the black exploitation boom, but it must have made a big impression because he's dedicated the last few years of his career to the form. He starred in and helped create the movie Black Dynamite, which debuted at Sundance in 2009. Since then, it's developed a fervent following for its mix of pitch-perfect satire and reverent homage. In this scene from the film Black Dynamite, the titular character, Black Dynamite, played by White, is deep in the inner sanctum of his enemy, the fiendish Dr. Wu, and his best friend, Bullhorn, meets the business end of one of Dr. Wu's throwing stars. Bullhorn, no! Bullhorn, no! At long last, a friendship bonded by the struggle against a man has been brought to an end by kung fu treachery! Brother... Your death will not go unavenged. Venus, Dr. Wu, you done f***ed up now! Uh, the growing cult success of the movie has led to a new animated series, which airs Sundays at 11.30 on Adult Swim. Carl Jones also joins me. He'd previously worked on The Boondocks, among other television programs, and is one of the executive producers of the new show. Michael Jai White, Carl Jones, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on here. Thanks for having us. Okay, so, Michael, it strikes me that you are a little bit young to have grown up seeing black exploitation movies, at least in the theaters, right? Yeah, well, um, I remember the very first movie I saw in my life was a black exploitation movie called Monkey Hustle, and that that starred um, Rudy Rudy Ray Moore. <laughs> yeah, Rudy Ray Moore is not necessarily known for child appropriate entertainment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, um, it was a uh, man. It was it was it was it was wild. Did they did they make an impression on you at the time? Yeah, because they they still had feel good things going on about people who didn't have anything, kind of like trying to work together, hustling to, to get over. You know, um, you know, back in the seventies, there was a time where it was, you know, you had this this kind of thing that was happening where 
a lot of brothers were just kind of put out the pasture. They they couldn't get a lot of work, and uh, and they had the welfare system where it it kind of um, rewarded uh, the woman for keeping the man out of the house. Mm. And so they would, you know, the welfare system would take care of you, but your the the husband or the father could not be around. So that really further castrated black men at the time. And so they really had to get kind of slick with their hustle to get over. That's why these anti-heroes, these, these guys like pimps, were looked at and revered at the time because these guys were getting over in the system any way they could. You know, numbers, runners, and everything else, you, you were a hero. You know, also, it was like a Robin Hood type of thing. They're yeah. also a sort of, I mean, to the point of absurdity, center of badassery. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> which, which is to me, is, is the funny aspect of it, because when you you have these movies that they were dead serious, when you know they would, it was like they would kill like twenty white people <laughs> and just get in the car and drive away, and that was like you know, like right. it was like he's the cool guy. It was like wait a minute, he just murdered twenty people, <laughs> and it was like it was okay, <laughs> and but at the time it was just like you know this this bounce back for the oppression and it was a lot of white guilt and black hostility that was just you know un unbridled on screen. <laughs> Carl, were you are are you old enough to have seen any of these movies in the movie theater? Uh, not not in the movie theater, but um, my mother had a lot of albums, so you know, and I was you know I would I would get my hands on a lot of a Dolomite. I mean, I was a huge Dolomite. Uh, fan as a kid, you know, I would listen to the albums when my mother was away, you know, um, and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was was a, was a huge influence on me when I was a kid. I used to I used to go to sleep playing Richard Pryor tapes like on a, on a tape player, and you know you could set it where it flips over and plays the other side. So I would go to sleep basically programming my <laughs> myself, you know, what I'm saying to Richard Pryor, and I go to school the next day saying some outlandish stuff, man, like a smoking cessation tape. Is yeah, that what it was you're like, like with the headphones. <laughs> Were there any of these movies for either of you guys that had a really significant impact on you in particular? Oh, yeah. There's several for me. I mean, I, I remember seeing Trouble Man, and I thought that was, like, really a, a well acted, like, as an action movie. And mm. he was, to me, one of the best actors of that time, Robert Hooks. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of those movies really affected me because there was this— there was these alpha black males that were represented that you you still don't see to this day. Yeah. I mean, for me, man, um, man, I mean, you know, anything that Rudy Ray Moore was in was, was really great to me. There was another actor that I liked in a lot of those films. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember Thalmus uh, uh, Rasulallah. Yeah, I just thought he was just like a, <laughs> he was so great on screen, man. And, uh, you know, I, I liked a lot of weird stuff man like space is the place um five on the black hand side was one of my favorites you know just had really good characters man and and you know and identifiable characters it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guests are michael jai white and carl jones from the new animated series black dynamite the show is a spin-off of a 2009 action comedy movie that follows the sometimes somewhat ridiculous exploits of a former cia agent and his crew I, I want to play one more clip from uh, the movie Black Dynamite. Um, this is uh, Black Dynamite as uh, as he enters the pimp council in an effort to uh, organize the neighborhood uh, to fight against, uh, well, basically the man. Black Dynamite! Damn. What's happening, baby? What it is, big ol'? Do what? Do we owe this pleasure? I just got one thing to lay on you, Captain, and I'll split. That I am declaring war on anybody who sells drugs in our community. But Black Dynamite, I sell drugs to the community. <laughs> well, be that as it may, if I catch you, I will not consider you a brother or a friend. Now, can you dig it? Hell no! <laughs> There, there are so many tropes. Oh, there are so many tropes of the black exploitation movie that show up in Black mm -hmm. Dynamite, mm -hmm. and I wonder when when you were making the film, Michael, um, what were the sort of touchstone moments that you felt like had to be you and your collabor collaborators, I should say, felt like had to be in this movie in order to make it the homage that you wanted it to be. Well, you had to. We had a checklist of things that you had to hit. And, you know, being that myself and the co-writer, Brian Menz, 
I mean, who's a, a, he's like an encyclopedia of <laughs> black exploitation. Uh, you know, if you look at ninety five percent of those movies, they all had their pimp quotient. They had their um, uh, white man paranoia thing about you know about they gonna get you that that type of thing. <laughs> you had to have your chase scene. You had to have your top shot. You had to have some kind of maniacal uh, plot against a black man. Um, you had to have your your dead whitey count. <laughs> yeah, at least 20 dead whiteys. Um, no cops a- anywhere right, around, right. you know. Uh, so, and everybody it, knows karate. Right. Everybody knows kung fu. Kung, kung yeah, fu. Yeah, it's kung fu. And, uh, and you know, and it, it, you had to, like, hit these, 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 mo- these moments. And you, and you have your, your, um, your moments where you, you think everything is over, and then one little clue leads you down the, the whole, uh, you know, rabbit hole. <laughs> well, they do they, they do that in CSI too. Right, right, right. You know, they do that all the time there's, in movies. There's an amazing scene in the movie that that we tried to excerpt, but it turned out to be so long, yeah, so yeah. Expositional, expositionally long. There's no way we could actually play it on the radio. It would take uh-huh. up half the interview. But um, you're sitting at a chicken and waffles restaurant right. with your sort of team of I don't know <laughs> amateur detectives. <laughs> mostly pimps who've decided to turn good and this you have the most absurd explanation of how you figure out the most absurd plot in the world well yeah i mean you know it's it's an homage to a lot of films and television shows to this day to where it's like oh man so uh, it didn't work out so you know i'm gonna i'm just gonna go rest and you know call the valet wait a minute what'd you say the valet (laughs) yeah the valet and speaking of valets, then you know, you know, you, you, and yeah, <laughs> what you, if you, it was in the valley? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, that happens over and over. But you know, of course, we're doing reality plus ten, and just make you know, just shining a light of ridiculousness on it. So I remember when I was writing that scene, I, the, I was just in my head the whole day, like making these connections, you know. <laughs> And my, and my wife almost couldn't talk to me because I was. Just, she's like, Mike. I'm like, wait. wait. <laughs> but I mean, just to be clear. Everybody in the movie's not pimps. No, <laughs> there's nobody. Nobody's a, a pimp. And there's, a, there's cream corn who uh, it was a wannabe, uh, but there's really like the the whole pimp culture thing. That's you know you have your little quotient of that you know because there are these outrageous characters that that showed up. Well, there is but, this. There is a magical, magical character on that pimp council. Named Captain Kangaroo Pimp. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just a pimp that wears the regular clothes that Captain Kangaroo wore on the Captain Kangaroo show. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was writing that, and I don't know what what craziness just ca- came in my head, and I just I just said Captain Kangaroo Pimp. And, and and actually, when I sent Arsenio that scene that I wanted him to be, you know, wanted him to be in, that's the deciding factor. Once he read Captain Kangaroo Pimp, he says, "I'm in." He was in. <laughs> that, that was it. That was it. But 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 that pimp uh, council scene is an homage to a scene in Willie Dynamite. Mm-hmm. That is, I'm sorry, they were dead serious. It's far more hilarious. Oh my God! It's one of the funniest, most horrible acting you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but it's just so outlandish. That I would encourage anybody to pull up the Willie Dynamite pimp scene, the pimp council scene. Uh, it's it'll have your, your your mouth wide open, and and the guy there's a guy who plays the the pimp who's running things called Bell, and just look at his performance. It is just and fun fact: Willie Dynamite is actually Gordon from Sesame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about the tone of this operation because mm. it's it's so much about tone. Oh yeah. Um and there have, you know, black exploitation has been such a significant cultural force for such a long time. Um you know, first as a sort of first-hand thing and more recently as a, you know, retrospective type thing. But you know, if you talk about I want to get you sucker or even like Pootie Tang or something like that that's sort of one step removed. Um, they're mostly about jokes, and Black Dynamite is as straight as it could possibly be. Yeah, it is all about 
something crazy happening in the most serious of tones. Yeah. Uh, uh, Actually, the true stars of that movie had to be the screenwriters. And you had to have had a movie that they felt they'd be proud of. So it couldn't have any overt jokes in it. And if it and if it had humor, it was for them. It would it would have to be the, for those fictional screenwriters of the seventies who were writing this this you know black power type of uh, movie that was going to be you know batted and shaft and superfly. It had a, a ring of truth that these people would have concocted this. What ends up happening is that you have these. You know, what sounds like the climactic battle, that that battle that we played in the intro with Doctor with the fiendish Doctor Wu and the and its various kung fu treacheries, um it turns out to be like the one of a long series of climactic <laughs> battles that, right. that end up with and you know, spoiler alert end up with Black Dynamite in the White House <laughs> fighting Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> like you half expect once he beats Nixon that he's gonna that he's gonna get in a rocket ship and take, <laughs> right, right. take on an evil white moon man. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, my influence, my writing influence for stuff like this is long time been Monty Python. I'm a Monty Python um, fan since I was a kid, yeah. and then I sought out like the Holy Grail, and I, and I probably know every frame in the Holy Grail. And it's just like how they crafted their comedy was was layered. It was like it was political. It was silly. And it was just like ridiculous on top of everything. And they like like they always end where they're almost jumping in a rocket ship. You know what I mean? They just like freak it. Okay, now at this point, we just go nuts. And so that's that's the influence I've had. After a break, more with Michael Jai White and Carl Jones. Plus. How a classic rock and roll song changed one songwriter's life, but only after he saw it in Back to the Future. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey, gang. The MaxFunCon East lineup is posted right now on our website, MaxFunCon.com. Want to spend the weekend with an Olympic pentathlete? You know you do. She might even share some of her secrets of success. Like fencing really well. And how about stand-up comedy from Michael Ian Black? Yes, please. Want to take a class taught by Public Radio's Kurt Anderson? Uh-huh. But there's one guy that you absolutely cannot miss. Talk show legend Dick Cavett. He'll be there, too. Max Funcon East is October 26th through the 28th in the Poconos. We'll have great sketch comedy from 10 West and Two Fun Men, a whole slew of classes to take you through the weekend, and tons of other stuff. The lineup is too long to list here, so go to our website, maxfuncon.com, and check it out. It'll be a truly amazing time. Registration is still open at maxfuncon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are two of the guys behind Cartoon Network's new animated series, Black Dynamite. It's based on a feature film from 2009 of the same name, a tribute to the black exploitation genre. Michael Jai White starred in the original movie, and he lends his voice to the animated series. Carl Jones is a producer and director of the TV show. I want to play a clip from uh, Black Dynamite, the television program, the animated television program. So in the pilot of the show, Black Dynamite is trying to solve his tax problems by uh, shepherding uh, Richard Pryor to the Sunset Strip show that becomes Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip. (laughs) And needless to say, Richard Pryor at this point in his career is, is difficult to shepherd. Right. Um, and so he loses him and um, they and Black Dynamite and, and his gang he- head over to uh, Paul Mooney's house, um, the legendary comedian and, and writer who right. wrote who was sort of a, the sidekick of Richard Pryor at the time um, to try and to try and get some insight into where Richard Pryor might be. <laughs> Richard's not here. What do you want? How did you know? I know you've got a Richard Pryor problem because no one shows up to Paul Mooney's pad unannounced unless they've got a Richard Pryor problem. I've been living in that brother's light skin shadow all of my life. Can you help us find him? Is a pig's pork. Where did you last see him? In a Brinks truck filled with two million big ones. That's what I was afraid of. You were trying to get him to the Sunset Strip, weren't you? 
You see, Richard thinks that if he goes to the Sunset Strip, then all he'll ever be is one of the greatest comedians that ever lived. Richard wants more than that. He wants to be like Malcolm X. <laughs> see, that's the problem. Well, besides being a comedy man that nobody will ever take serious, what's stopping him? You mean besides the cocaine, the quaaludes, volume, white woman, mother issues, father issues, racism, vodka, pork, and fame? Was that you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a backstory there. I want to hear the backstory because I would think, I would think that if you called Paul Mooney, you could get Paul Mooney. Yeah, well, well, we did get Paul Mooney. Um, <laughs> no, no, we we kind of got Paul Mooney. We, we literally did get Paul Mooney, and um, it, it was really interesting, too, because Paul got in the booth, and he started looking through the script, and he was like, wait, 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 wait. This is not how it happened. No, when they came to my house, the first thing, my dog tried to eat them. That's what happened. I had a dog who hated white people, and they, they came to the door. No, they always came looking for Richard. You no, know, that was every day. They would come looking for Richard. They'd come see me. So he just started going into this whole thing, and, and I was like, well, you know, Paul, you can change any lines you want. He said, oh, no, I am going to change them. <laughs> he said, so, um, so anyways, he recorded what he wanted to. Um, and, um, you know, the script. I mean, He the, took the comedy legend's prerogative. Right. But but the, the show went through some changes. We, we altered some lines and things of that nature. And we were already kind of busting at the seams with our budgets, man, with voiceover. So we couldn't even, you know, we couldn't bring it back in. So I just, I had to, you know, had to, had to substitute. <laughs> There's so much pain in this pilot. I mean, the yeah. the pain of being Richard Pryor is essentially the central driving force of this ridiculous, you know, uh, shaggy dog plot. Mm. Um, and I was surprised by that. I got to mm. say, when I saw it, because the movie is, you know, the movie is a lot like a lot of black exploitation movies. The stakes are we got to save our community. Right. And that sort of because it's so broad is a little bit nonsensical and doesn't mean a lot. Right, right. The 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 pilot of the television show because of that pain of Richard Pryor that's described in that clip is really personally emotionally intense in a way that caught me off guard. Yeah, well I, I think um I think it's a uh it's kind of a, a look at Hollywood and, and how you know, I think there's a lot of black comics and 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 you know, I I mean celebrities in general that deal with certain pressures and certain you know certain things within the business that drive them to this this uh this this dark place and i felt like it was an opportunity kind of you know to open that up a little bit and show people you know what if what if richard what if what if that was his dilemma and what if he didn't want to be laughed at and what if he he wasn't necessarily this insane you know maniac that's just snorting cocaine everywhere like what if he actually had something to say what if he you know what i mean and and make him a human being because for so you know, it's 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 so easy to make fun of these characters, but not treat them like humans. And that's the thing that I didn't want to do because I actually admire Richard Pryor, and I, I grew up listening to Richard Pryor. Like I'm, you know, so yeah, it was. Uh, and I was actually told a story um, that him and Jim Brown basically had this plan of kind of, you know, creating somewhat of a, a black Hollywood. And I don't know how true this is, but someone told me that that he 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 had a party. And where everyone gathered and Richard started to, to, he got up, you know, in front of everyone, started explaining to him what his plan was. And people just started laughing, you know, and they thought it was a joke. And he, and, and so he decided just to go another direction and no one would take him serious. Like he wanted to, you know, actually make a difference. Well, in, they, they actually got pretty far in that. They did? Oh, he and Jim Brown, they had, they had it all, you know, uh, wor- worked out. Um, and uh, that was uh, they had money behind it and everything. It was called Indigo, Indigo Films. Mm. Yeah, there was definitely a serious part of Richard Pryor. I mean, as indicated by later, he dropped the, the N word. Right. You know, right. And, and so his he was a conscious guy too. So looking at that side of Richard, I think is really really interesting because we we happen to know that there, that that part exists. And I I look at the parallels between he and Dave Chappelle and other other yeah. comedians and stuff where. Um, after a while, you're going, wait a minute, are you laughing at me? <laughs> yeah. Or there, with me. I, I just interviewed a, a, an old friend of mine, W. Kamau Bell, who's got a show coming out on FX. And he, for a long time, worked with Dave Chappelle very regularly. Um, and his new show is produced by Chris Rock. And um, he said very succinctly that there's. it seems like there's something that people – struggle to deal with about being the funniest black guy in America, mm. that there's something, that there's some pain there. Right. There's some pain point. There's something that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Well, I think the, I mean, 
you know, I mean, it's not like this is a this. I mean, the the, the industry is dysfunctional to a to a, to a fault, you know. And I think it's we can't ignore, you know, because I, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that a lot of people start out being that guy, you know. And maybe there's something that's buried deep. You know, obviously, most of the comedy comes from a painful place anyway. So there's a lot of pain that's been buried. But I think never being taught how to deal with those pains and just always opening yourself up to the public on a nightly basis could somewhat be damaging, I think, to an extent. Like, you never know what, you know, how those pressures to continuously give people your pain and at at a you know at a comedic level, like how it starts to affect you, you know. And I think there's also there's also a a problem when you are afraid that if you give up your pain, you will also lose your ability to affect the world. Right. Um, right. Lose your power. Yeah. That's all I got on that. <laughs> <laughs> we got deep all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that got really that got really real. <laughs> It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Michael Jai White and Carl Jones from the new animated series Black Dynamite. The show is a spinoff of a 2009 action comedy movie that follows the sometimes somewhat ridiculous exploits of a former CIA agent and his crew. Um, Let's hear one last uh, clip from... Uh, Black Dynamite, the television program. In in this scene, Black Dynamite's sidekick, Cream Corn, uh, saves a young Michael Jackson, a man not known for his functionality, from an assassination attempt. And then Michael shows up at Black Dynamite's doorstep to return the favor with an ice skating rink. (laughs) Man, it ain't even cold, and Michael Jackson got it snowing in the globe. Oh my God, Michael! What are you doing here? I just couldn't stop thinking about that bullet that you caught in your for me. That was so very, very special. So I thought it might be nice to make a Christmas in July for you. I hope you like it. Like it? I want to marry it. It's like a dream. Thank you, Michael Jackson. Thank you, 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 Michael Jackson. That Michael Jackson is a stone cold pimp. What's so stone cold about a little boy buying a motherfucker all the things he ever dreamed of? I bet he couldn't swing a nunchuck if he tried. Oh man! There's something. Uh, so there is this thing about the '70s, mm. um, which I maybe was going to put down to the idea that this is uh, that it was the first opportunity for Black America to engage in real self-definition. Mm. That is the first chance for people to say, "This is who I am," rather than have their identity imposed on them. You know, by this, by this, you know, very awful culture absolutely i mean when when shaft came out uh anybody who remembers that the uh it was some kind of astronomical figure that the leather jacket industry mm. blew up <laughs> because he wore this black leather jacket this, this three uh three-quarter length leather yeah. jacket and you know and then i don't know of an uncle or you know anybody from that time period <laughs> that didn't attest to that you know that was like they were finding their identity like in in a big way that's and the and the um they overcompensated with the movies you know yeah. so it was like just super black and any, any white movie that was successful they just put the word black in the front of it <laughs> like you had there was black godfather you yeah, know yeah. there was black godfather there was bl- black shampoo yeah. I mean really, black shampoo. <laughs> you know. Hilarious. But there's there's something there's something that is powerful about that time period even now in 2012, 35 and 40 years on. And it's a time period with a lot of messed up st- plenty of there was no shortage of messed up stuff still going on. Mm-hmm. Um so what do you think is the appeal of that time for us now? Well, I mean still, I mean in this uh, environment where people are po- politically correct, you had movies and music that really spoke of the human condition in an honest fashion, you know. And you know, they, and they, I'm, I'm playing a character in Black Dynamite is acting on id, you know. And you want to do that. If you can't do that in your regular life, you want to. You want somebody to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so calling a spade a spade or just you know. 
telling a woman something that you wish you could tell a woman, right, right, <laughs> Black right. Dynamite can do that, uh, that that's timeless. Now, I, I went on YouTube and I saw Mike teaching Kimbo Slice how to throw a punch. Mess my head up. Like, I, I, I'm watching Kimbo Slice like knock people's brains out, and then Mike is sitting there saying, "That's not how you do it. <laughs> it's like this." That is just incredible to me, man. This guy. But okay, oh, yeah. so Carl, I hold on, <laughs> Carl. I what I want to know for you is a guy who is, I presume, at least in, at some point, hung out socially w- yeah. with Michael. Yeah. What's it like to be hanging around a guy that you know could tear the trachea out of anyone in the room? Dude, it's weird, it's weird because I thought when I met Mike, that's what I was going to be thinking about all the time. But he's—I've been thinking about a fair amount. But but, the course of but, nah, but what's funny is like he's like the farthest thing from that guy. Like you, well, at least from what I've seen so far, <laughs> like. You know, because he—I mean—he's like really funny and real laid back and cool. So you forget that he can rip somebody's trachea out for, for you know. I mean, until he, it comes up. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I've you know I've yet to have I've never seen him actually, you know. But uh, yeah, Carl Jones, <laughs> Michael Jai White, thank you for joining me on Bullseye. It was great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, thank you for having us. Um, you, you can catch the movie Black Dynamite on uh, home video. I I really strongly recommend it, and you can watch the television program, which I also really strongly recommend. Don't worry, Carl. Um, Sundays at eleven thirty on it. Well, because I said I strongly recommended the first one, I started feeling bad halfway through plugging the second one. Uh, it airs Sundays at eleven thirty on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jason Brewer sings and plays guitar in the South Carolina-based band The Explorers Club. The band's songs are a mix of harmonies, guitars, and horns that would fit right in with the experimental pop on the Beach Boys' 1966 album Pet Sounds. The Explorers Club released a new album earlier this year called Grand Hotel. But Brewer has another classic rock influence, Chuck Berry. The duck-walking rock and roll pioneer catches the ears of many guitarists in their formative years. Brewer was no exception, but there was one song in particular that grabbed him. Johnny Be Good. He doesn't remember the first time he heard it. But I remember when it changed my life. When I was four years old, my uh, dad took me to the movies to see Back to the Future. And uh, the scene where Marty McFly plays guitar with the uh, the band at the high school dance. It was the deciding factor in my life that I wanted to play guitar and wanted to be in a band. It's the scene in the movie where he's basically gone back to the 50s and his parents are supposed to meet, but he's kind of interrupted it and his mother has fallen for him. So at one point he's on the dance floor and he leaves the dance floor to go play guitar with the band on stage. All right, this is, uh, this is an oldie. But, uh, well, it's an oldie where I come from. He just leans over to the band and said, All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? And they kind of all laugh at him, and he just kicks into this wild song. And this style of music that... You know, within context, hasn't broken yet at that part of the 50s, so, you know, he really's throwing the band for a loop. When I was little, I used to imitate my dad and bang on the piano at the house. But when I saw that, I was like, I don't want the piano. I want a guitar. 
I think the kicker to that scene for me then and it still is now is how the it just so happens that the singer and guitar player who's injured his hand is Chuck Berry's cousin and he calls him on the phone while he's playing the song. Chuck! Chuck! It's Marvin! Your cousin, Marvin Berry! You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this! That was just the coolest thing to see this guy just kind of ripping it up on stage. And he kicks into some Van Halen riffs at the end. You know, just comedic effect. It was just life-changing because, I mean, I don't know, to a four-year-old, this, this you know, young guy playing a, a 50s Gibson is the coolest-looking thing you'll ever see. Um, I finally got one and I started playing around 10 or 11 years old. And I mean, my initially my whole goal was to learn that song on the guitar. Ten years later, uh, Explorers Club started closing all their shows with that song. In fact, I think if we hadn't closed our shows with that song, we wouldn't have got our first record deal. It was just like, are you kidding me? These kids are doing this dumb rockabilly song. It just kind of started a little buzz around our band because they're like this crazy group of 22-year-olds playing this old-fashioned music but playing it with a passion. Jason Brewer is the lead singer and guitarist for the Explorers Club. The band's most recent album is Grand Hotel. After a break, actress Rachel Dratch walks into a bar, meets a guy, and six months later, she's pregnant. She didn't even know she could still get pregnant. We'll talk about her recent book. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey there, Bullseye listeners. This is Ian and Mike from How to Do Everything. If you haven't heard How to Do Everything, we're a half-advice show, half-survival guide. You send us your questions, we find experts to answer them. No question is too big or too small. Anything from how do I find water in the desert to how do I ask out a coworker without it getting weird. Or how do I stop my minivan from crashing because it doesn't have any brakes. It was a scary one. It actually happened. Yep. You can subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes. Or check out our website at howtodoeverything.org. And, you know, if you have a burning how-to question of your own, send it to us at howto at npr.org. Unless you're actually burning, in which case you should call 911. Do, yeah, do that instead. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rachel Dratch, was a cast member of Saturday Night Live from 1999 to 2006, performing signature characters like the classic Hollywood producer Abe Scheinwald, the moment-ruining, sad trombone-inducing Debbie Downer, and Denise Zazu-McDenna, the absurdly thickly-accented Southie teen. Here she is alongside Will Ferrell in one of my favorite Saturday Night Live roles, The Lovers. Would anyone care for some baba ganoush or hummus before we start our main course? Mm. It's so wonderful, Walter, when we're graced with a visit from you. Mm. Well, I always treasure my conferences at the university and, of course, my time with my old colleagues. I'm just so glad I got to come along. It's so beautiful here. Oh, you really must take advantage of the view from Pullman Falls. It's absolutely perfect for lovers' walks. Mm. Yes. 
Are you taking lovers' walks? Uh, what do you mean? Well, are you at the point in your relationship where you can walk hand in hand as lovers? <laughs> I, uh, guess so. <laughs> Actually, we haven't been seeing each other all that long. Oh, I see. So in due time, eh, lover? Yes, Virginia. After her run on Saturday Night Live ended, she found herself adjusting to the life of a regular working actress without a steady job for the first time in more than 10 years. She's worked in TV, film, and theater since with recurring roles on 30 Rock, among other venues. But the biggest change in her life is a baby. In her early 40s, she'd been long-distance dating a boyfriend for a few months when she discovered, much to her shock, that she was pregnant. Girl Walks Into a Bar is about her career, her dating misadventures, and her life as a 40-something new mom. Rachel Dratch, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. You've just encapsulated my life beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) My my work here is done. (laughs) I can only imagine that there's other stuff other than that. Not, Not much. You pretty much got it. I think we're done here. You write a lot and in, in very eloquently, I think, about um, uh, about your improv experience in Chicago, um, improv and sketch experience, yeah. I should say. And I was reading an interview that you did. I think it was, it seemed like it was right when you had just been cast on Saturday Night Live. And you were describing uh, an improv group that you were in at uh, the Improv Olympic in Chicago, which is a legendary improv theater in Chicago. And it had in it, um, I, I'm working from memory, not notes here, but I, I think it was um, Matt Besser and Ian Roberts, who both uh, went on to be in the Upright Citizens Brigade, Adam McKay, who also went on to be in the Upright Citizens Brigade and, and is famous for being Will Ferrell's writing and directing mm-hmm. partner um, and wrote on Saturday Night Live for quite a long time. Um, Neil Flynn, who folks might know as the janitor from Scrubs and has also done all kinds of other television acting work. Um, and all of these guys are improv legends. The other thing that struck me about them is that they're, they're all, all um, huge <laughs> yeah, Midwestern yeah. type dudes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're all actually from the Midwest. I'm, Matt Besser, I know, is from He's, Arkansas. Yeah. Well, they're all very tall and most of them are, have imposing figures. Um, but I actually think that was good training because I was the only woman on the team. And, um, you know, it made me, you know, if I wanted to get out and say something, I had to really get out there and say something. So it was, uh, it was a good group to be in. Something that I really enjoyed reading in your book was, um, and I don't mean to revel in, in your misfortune, but was how little you liked, uh, attending Dartmouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, you know, I apologize I, for enjoying something, enjoying hearing that you didn't enjoy something. Um, well, that's where the comedy lies, I guess. <laughs> but tell me about how, how you ended up, uh, how you ended up choosing and, and going to uh, Dartmouth. Well, when I walked around, it was like all the guys looked like they were out of an 80s teen movie. And so I was kind of <laughs> like, oh, this is so cool. But then what I realized when I got there is like it was all like the James Spaders from Pretty in Pink and the, the Niedermeyers from Animal House. <laughs> and um, that I was more of like, you know, the Ducky and the Bluto figure. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of got sucked in by that like preppy thing. <laughs> and then I realized, wait a minute, I don't belong here. But I have to say, though, eventually I did like ferret out my kind of people, um, a.k.a. a lot of closeted gay men. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how did you how did you figure out that uh, comedy was uh, uh, was not just the path for you, but was even a, a path for you? You know, I started doing improv in college and um, I really liked it. And um, I don't, God, I don't even know what propelled me to Chicago. But we, you know, we had gone, as my improv group, we had gone to sort of check out Chicago. And so I thought, I'll just try it and see what Chicago's like. But I didn't have any instant success. It was sort of gradually, like each year, I'd make a little bit more progress. So then that kind of kept me in it. You know, you know, the first thing was like, oh, I got on the house team at Improv Olympics. Then you're in it for another year, you know, and then then I got in the touring company of Second City. And then that's your path to getting on the main stage at Second City. So I was in Chicago for nine years um, and I did the main stage for four years. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
My guest is the actress and comedian Rachel Dratch, who spent seven seasons performing on Saturday Night Live. Her book about becoming a mother late in life is called Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy Calamities, Dating Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. One of Dratch's most recognizable characters from Saturday Night Live is Debbie Downer. Here's a clip from it. Now, the premise of the sketch is pretty straightforward. Debbie Downer is ruining a family trip to Disneyland with her non-winning attitude. But after a few Downer-type comments, the rest of the cast starts to crack. The other players in the sketch include Jimmy Fallon, Fred Armisen, and guest host Lindsay Lohan. So, uh, hey... Who wants to go on Space Mountain with me? Me! I want to see the Country Bear Jamboree. I want to go to every country in Epcot and greet them in their own native language. Hola, konnichiwa, hi. (laughs) Did you guys hear about that train explosion in Northern Korea? (laughs) Media is so sensitive there. So secretive. never know how many people perished. The Saturday Night Live audition is uh, is has this very specific format, which is you do uh, a certain number of original characters and a certain number of celebrity impressions. And so a lot of people will go, will, will have spent their whole sketch comedy careers with that in mind and have developed some impressions and characters and then use them on their audition. And if they don't get the part, they're sort of <laughs> busted. Um, and you're not really an impressionist particularly. Um, so what was it like for you after you had done one round of auditions to come back a year later and um, have to come back with a, with a whole new set of stuff? Well, you know, I felt like I'd used the really good stuff the first audition, so then I had my sort of second stringer characters. So um, I didn't feel quite as good about the characters I brought, but um, I came back with a lot more impressions than I had the first year. So I don't know. Maybe it all balanced out or something. What were the impressions that you did? Um, I think I did, like, Drew Barrymore and Sarah Jessica Parker and... um, Oh, geez, I don't even remember. The first year I did Callista Flockhart, which that was like my one my one good impression. And then the other ones were like, okay. But, um, God, I don't remember. Oh, I, I know. I did Paula Poundstone, if anyone even knows who she is. <laughs> the comedian, the stand-up comic, I did her. Um, and I don't even remember the other ones. It was like 80 years ago. <laughs> I, I like the idea of, of Saturday Night Live writing a whole string of Paula Poundstone-based yeah. sketches. You know what? I actually did end up doing her on the show once. In one of those scenes where they have like a bunch, like a string of people come through the door, I actually did do Paula Poundstone. I mean, and Paula Poundstone has actually been on this show. Paula Poundstone oh, really? is really funny. But yeah. how, do you do, how do you even come to develop an impression um, of Paula think, Poundstone? Because you know, the reason is she's such a random... It's because like, you just hear and you're like, oh, I could do that. So then you're like, all right, she's going in the... <laughs> the trick bag, you know, that kind of thing. As opposed to someone super Give me a set of shoulder pads wide surfing. enough. Shoulder, Yeah, it's all about the shoulder pads and the necktie. <laughs> um, did you already have friends working on Saturday Night Live when you went to work on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, well, Tina was there writing and Adam was there writing and Horatio was a cast member. So that's pretty much who I knew. How did that affect, do you think, that your sort of entrance into that world. It seems like a lot of people kind of drop into it and are overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I mean, it can be really overwhelming. I'm sure it helped me that, you know, Adam and Tina were there. I mean, I ended up writing a lot with Tina and she already knew the ropes in terms of like the the way a scene works at SNL is very different from Second City because Second City, you can kind of take your time more and develop a character more and the audience will it's more of a theatrical experience but at SNL like someone's going to change the channel like you have to have the jokes out there right away so Tina knew that in a way that I didn't know it so she really helped me when I first got there in terms of if I had a character idea like it could be a great character but I didn't know how to get it into an SNL format scene so I wrote a lot with her and I'm sure that helped me greatly on the flip side though like when you get there it is just kind of sink or swim like no matter who you know and whatever you know at the end of the day you're kind of on your own and um you just have to figure out the system by yourself, sort of. Do you uh, do you remember the first thing that you got on the air that really worked? 
Um, well, the first thing I got on that I had a part in writing was Sully and Denise, you know, that I wrote with Tina. Um, and it was a, based on a – Tina and I used to do these Boston characters at Second City. So then we brought it to SNL when we both ended up there. That was the first thing that I had a part in writing that really worked. Is the light flashing? All right, cool. Yo, 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 this is Pat Sullivan and Mr. Nichols' fourth period audiovisual class. For my video project, I'm filming a trip to Burlington Mall with my girl, Denise. I swear to God, Sully, if you don't get that Burger King breath out of my face, I'm going to get wicked pissed off. Hey, kids, kids. I'm going to have to ask you not to dry hump by the food products. Are you the manager? You flatter me. I'm the assistant manager. Oh, I wanted to know if you're hiring any holiday help. We sure are. You kids filming this? He is. It's a school project. He's not a verbal person, but he is a very visual person. I got a learning disorder because my mom was a big huffer back in the day. Well, yes, we are looking for part-timers. Your name? Denise McDonough. But everybody calls me Zazu! The schedule of Saturday Night Live is one of the craziest things in the world to me because it is, uh, I, I mean... I think one of the things that's lost because the production is so slick is that it is genuinely a live show that is genuinely almost completely written within the space of a week, written, rehearsed and performed within the space of a week. And so, you know, sometimes it will be for, for people who work on the show, a couple of weeks in a row of working continuously insane hours and then sometimes also you'll just not be working that week um what was it like to have for that long uh, a job that so dominated sort of despotically dominated your life well you kind of get used to it i mean you know it's what you've wanted for you know your whole comedy life so you're you're psyched to be there when it's like three in the morning because it's just oh my god i'm on saturday live so um you know you you soon learn like don't make any plans with outside friends because you'll probably have to break them or you won't feel like keeping them you know so um yeah it's a very nocturnal intense schedule but i think that kind of goes with comedy was it hard to shift gears when because i mean you it from from reading the book i get the impression that it was like a conscious decision when you found yourself outside of that situation and in a life that you were, you know, that you were the boss of, that you were like, you know what, I'm going to date people on dates. Well, I just had run out of excuses because I had nothing but time. And so here I was lamenting like, you know, oh, I'm single, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, well, I guess I had to do something about it. But like, I really had time to date at SNL. I just kind of used SNL as my excuse of why I wasn't really actively pursuing the whole dating scene because it, it kind of made for like a comfortable – I mean I talked about like it was my comfort zone so I didn't have to put myself out there because I could just hang with these really funny dudes and um, my friends from outside and you know I had my whole little comfortable situation. So why go out with a total stranger? It seems like a lot of the dating that you did was – was really just a matter of sort of putting your head and shoulders down and plowing your way through what was left of the dating pool. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I went on some normal dates too, but those normal dates don't make for a funny story. So you write about the ones that, you know, something was a little off about. That's where the laughs lie. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> um. So you actually, I mean, the the title of your book, uh, A Girl Walks Into a Bar, comes from the fact that you actually ended up meeting uh, the father of your child uh, at a bar. Um, he was just kind of like a good-looking guy that you ended up chatting to while you were waiting for a, a drink order. Yeah, I went and we were sitting, I was with my friend, we were sitting outside, and um, he was just standing next to where I went up to the bar, and um, I don't know, we just started chatting. Then I had to go back out to my friend, I was like, oh, you guys should come join us, so they came and sat outside with us, and that's how it all started. You started dating this guy, and, and as you mentioned, he was in town from California, actually in town from from Mill Valley, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. 
And when when you found out that you were pregnant, the two of you had been dating for uh, a matter of months, like six months, and dating six months, yeah, and dating long distance. So you know, you had a good relationship going. But well, yeah, I think you know we weren't like, oh my god, I found my soulmate, la la la. We were just more like, you know, we had fun. We um, he would visit each other. We we'd talk on the phone a lot. Like I don't want to make it seem like. You know, I barely knew the guy, but but we we had been dating long distance for only six months, so you know we'd probably spent about a month total in each other's actual presence. What was the thing that has that happened to you, especially you know at the beginning that that you least expected, that you were least able to plan for? Well, you know what's weird? The actual thing that the, it was sort of a flip around, like. I, I was most surprised by how well everything went. I mean, in terms of John and and me um, dealing with a newborn, and like it was just kind of a strange, positive experience. I mean, yeah, you know, you get no sleep and blah blah. But I was kind of used to no sleep from SNL, and like I was always a night person, and so I wasn't like that. Didn't that didn't throw me at all the no sleep thing? And then I don't know, like we were both just together in this really actually cool way when you think of our circumstance. Um, so that was probably the most, you know, pleasantly surprising part of it. And then beyond that, um, although I do talk in the book about like trying to be in any sort of seduction mode or flirtation mode, I should say, <laughs> like when, you know, you're hooked up to a breast pump, it's like all the mystique <laughs> is just gone. And there's a lot of like, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of that in the book of just being like, you know, looking your worst, stripped down, and your, you know, your inner animal core, and you're with this person that, like, six months ago, you were like, "Hey, can I get you a drink?" I mean, it's like that was like the funniest yet surreal part of the whole story, I guess. And then, you know, I didn't have really many jobs going on, so I had a lot of time to throw myself into the whole mom thing. So that turned out to be a fun thing instead of a bad thing. Well, Rachel Dratch, a a thousand congratulations and thanks for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you. Rachel Dratch's book is Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy Calamities, Dating Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Bill Bryson made his name as a sort of reverse Alistair Cook. He's a Midwesterner who lives in the UK, and his early books kind of translated the English-speaking world into English. He explained the Appalachian Trail to the Brits and Australia to the Americans, and generally was the self-effacing, funny, intelligent guide to little things that we recognized but were just a little bit different somewhere else. I read his most recent book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, while I was on vacation on the Riviera Maya. To be honest, I was a little worried about bringing it because it's pretty hefty, but I ended up being really glad I did. In At Home, Bryson uses his own house, a Parsons estate in the English countryside, to look at the history of domestic life. History is interesting to me, but I don't care that much about battles or presidents, so you'd be hard-pressed to find a more appealingly human subject than the home. He searches through history room by room with a chapter for each. The themes quickly broaden, though, and then they meander from anecdote to anecdote. But these anecdotes, these are great anecdotes. He writes about the first cities where people apparently crawled across roofs to get from place to place because no one had thought yet of, you know, putting roads between houses. There's a great section on the last thousand years or so of the English diet, including all of the weird-ass birds people ate. Basically, if you can think of a bird, some English guy who lived in a castle ate it. They would have like 15 different birds. They ate flamingos. He writes about all the things people have made into mattresses and candles, about the history of the ice business, which turns out to be really important, and about guano, 
For real, there are like 10 pages about guano, which at one point was one of the most important commodities in the world. And those 10 pages about guano are great. And if you don't know, guano means bird The book has its weaknesses. It's gleefully Anglo-centric with a few dalliances in the U.S. and France and a couple glances at the ancient world. Its structure, beyond the conceit of wandering from room to room to room, could basically be summarized as, oh yeah, that reminds me. It's pretty much about rich people who have more amusing stuff, to be fair, and it doesn't build to a grand vision of anything. But when you get miscellanea that is this good, it's hard to care. Basically, it seems like Bryson read a couple hundred history books and dog-eared the parts he thought were cool. It's a loosey-goosey journey, like talking to a guy at a party who's two drinks ahead of you. But you know what? If every guy at a party was as funny and fascinating as Bill Bryson in At Home, I'd go to a lot more parties. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter at bullseye. And you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.